Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. My name is Robert, and I'm a, an alcoholic, and I think more importantly, thank you, more importantly, and uh, tradition of my sponsor, Will, I'm a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic, and uh, I want to welcome you. First 30 days in your first meeting, I have 13,007 days today, and I am mind blown by what's happened to me. You know. It says in the big book that we, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And if there's anything that we can do to help you along the way, all you have to do is stay. If there's anything that we who have been in the rooms for a while, our biggest asset is not leaving. You know, um, I was talking to my friend Wendy last night and, and we talk about the fellowship and the recovery of the program. You know, we read in the preamble, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of people, right? When I came in, it was men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that we might solve our common problem and help others recover from alcoholism. We have a common problem. Alcohol has overtaken our life, and we're going down faster than we ever thought we would, and we don't have a way out. That's our common problem. There's a lot of differences between us, but the differences don't get us well. The differences don't drive us to recovery. The differences keep me from hearing the message that you're trying to share with me. That, Robert, there's a different way. You don't have to die from a curable disorder. Not only can we recover, but I dare say, and it's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that we get well. And my friend Tom Bennett, who since passed away, said that we can become weller than the well, right? It's not very good grammar, but it works for me, right? And that's what we have waiting for. So if you're new or relatively new to the program of recovery, just stick around. Move from the fellowship that gets us to come back to the program of recovery that teaches us what we've always wanted to learn. And that's in the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a big book thumper, for which I make no apologies. You know, from the forward to the first edition, all the way back to the back appendix, where it even tells me that contempt prior to investigation is a bar against all information and will lead me to everlasting ignorance. All the way from the beginning, where it says, we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And to show you how we have recovered is precisely, and they italicized it, and you know when they italicize something, it just means they want to get my attention. And they got my attention. Because I did relapse after 71 days of recovery. And I went back out there because, you know, I thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. And that's where it says, with all the earnestness at our command. You know, alcohol is always waiting for us. But we don't know if these rooms are waiting for us. 
you know, I hear a lot on social media people say that relapse is a part of recovery. I call BS. Relapse is part of my addiction, which has nothing to do with recovery. Coming in and staying clean and sober from day one is our ultimate goal. Now, if we fail in that, we come back providing we can. Right? I remember when I came back after being five days out there, you know what I tried to do when I relapsed? I tried, tried to recapture that moment of what I call being an almost. You know, where it didn't hurt too bad over here and it didn't hurt too bad over there, but right in the middle with alcohol and some substance of drugs, I could find that, that, that medium point where, where I didn't have to kill myself and it didn't hurt too much to live, right? And we try to find that place, that space where I don't have to be honest, but I'm so tired of lying. I'm so tired of losing. I'm so tired of disappointing my wife. I'm so tired of walking out of my children. I'm so tired of getting fired from jobs that I like. I'm so tired from having my mom and dad look at me and think, what do, what do we have to do? I'm tired of my sisters and my brothers stop inviting me over because they can't trust how I'm going to be. You know, and I then come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And just so you know how denial runs deep, and they told me that, uh, well, I'll tell you this first because this is kind of funny. Um, and, and if you're of a religious sect or denomination, don't be offended if you are. Love and tolerance is our code, right? <laughs> so so there's, there, there's this Baptist and there's this um, Jehovah or, or Christian scientist and there's this Mormon. They all, you know, end up in heaven, dead, right? So on their way, they they are denying their addiction, right? And so the, the Baptist said, if I had just listened to my preacher, I wouldn't be here. And the Mormon says, if I just listened to my bishop, I wouldn't be here. And the Christian scientist sat over in the corner and said, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here. <laughs> you know, and often that's how we are when we come in, you know? I was telling uh, Ashley before the meeting that they told me early on that, that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is like this giant wrench that will fit any nut who walks in, right? And it was true, you know, and they told me if I'm not sure that I'll do till one shows up and I'm so glad I stayed. I stayed as long as I could until the pressure got too much because, you know, when we look at the how, the H-O-W of how this thing works, it's honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And I was willing to be honest to a degree I was just honest enough for you to like me. And then I just sort of shut down on that level of honesty because I was convinced, knowing who I was, where I came from, the things that you and I do along the way, I was convinced that if you really knew everything about me, I would be the first person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that you would ask not to come back. You know, at the end of the meeting, we say, keep coming back at works, right? We'll love you until you can learn how to love yourself. All those wonderful cliches that we learn along the way. But I knew, if you knew how sick I was, if you knew the things that I did, you would say, you know, you're a little bit too sick for us. I really thought that in my mind. Because that's how I grew up. You know, I know that alcohol is part of every one of our story. Alcoholics Anonymous, right? 
even for my Al-Anon friend Susie. Alcohol is a big part of her story because of her significant other. And yet, I didn't always drink. You know, and that's where I found so much of the commonality. I didn't start drinking until I was 14 years old. Everything before that prepared me to drink. You know, when we go back and we do our inventory, I remember, by the way, I'm not a drunkalog guy, so if you're waiting for a drunkalog, it's not going to happen. There's nothing good in my life that happened as a result of alcohol, so I don't have any funny stories to share with you. I have a lot of great stories to share with you since I've been in recovery. But I remember being five years old and crying myself to sleep at night. I remember being so afraid. I didn't understand why even at five years old it hurt so much being me. I was in so much pain. My dad was alcoholic. My mom was codependent. I was in the middle of seven children. We didn't have any money. I was like a poster child for for family dysfunction and addiction. That's not an excuse though. That's a reason. And I remember the laying in bed wondering why it hurt so much. And you know, you can only take that sort of pain so long before you either kill yourself or you find a way to manage the pain. Because I just wanted the madness to stop. That's all I wanted. I just didn't want to hurt. I, I had no intention of becoming alcoholic when I started drinking at 14 years old. You know, the first time I drank, I remember being under my tree with, with um, Dean and Don Cato and Chris Ayudo, and we were sitting out. It was a summer night in Southern California, and our parents had passed out by this time, and so we started collecting some alcohol from each other's home, and we sat under my tree in my front yard, and I drank. The first time I drank, as Father Martin would say, because I wanted to do what the big people did, right? I wanted to get away with something. But every subsequent time I drank until I was 18 years old, I drank because of how it made me feel the first time I drank. Every bit of insanity, every bit of confusion, every bit of wondering if I had value just sort of went away. I tell people when you are a nothing and you know you've come from nothing and you're always going to be a nothing being an almost is everything and that's what alcohol did for me it told me I was an almost I was never going to be good but I wasn't going to be quite as bad and every time I subsequently drank up until I was 18 years old was to try to capture that feeling of being an almost I call it going through life sideways Right? I can't face it on and I and I and I and I don't hate life or hate myself at this particular time to kill myself, but I just didn't know how to face life on life's terms. So I would find substances other than alcohol just to sort of enhance, because you can only drink so much in high school without getting caught. So you have to find other substances just to just to make your feel good feel good, right? Just to get through the day. And then I remember when I was 18 years old, January 3rd of 1972, I turned 18 years old. I walked into the register's office in uh, Corvallis High School and I announced that I was dropping out of high school. And she said, you can't do that. And I said, I'm 18 years old. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and that was me. I'll show you. I'll kill me. I was no longer going to allow people to define me I was going to define me all on my own 
and I set off on a, on a pattern of drinking that would almost kill me up until I was 32 years old until I found these rooms. You know, and every time I would drink, I would need to drink more. There's this, there's this um, term called tolerance, right? And tolerance says that I need to do more today than I did yesterday to achieve the same result. And I didn't know it at the time, but that's what was happening to me. And relationship after relationship and job after job and situation after situation, it says no matter how far down we have gone, right? And that's what I was doing. As I was trying to promote my independence and my freedom and my ability to make my own decisions, what I was doing was killing me. I was injecting me with a poison of denial that almost did kill me. In relationship after relationship, job after job, nothing was working. I was in such denial over my alcoholism that my first meeting, my first 12-step meeting in Las Vegas was at a Catholic church and it was with Gamblers Anonymous. Because if there's anything we alcoholics know is protect the supply. That's like the number one rule. You know, we always have to know where that next bottle is before we finish the one we're on because we know even if we have to take a break we call sleep, right? In a relatively short period of time we're going to need more alcohol. So we need to know where that alcohol is because God forbid we run out, right? Because by this time I needed alcohol on a cellular level. It was no longer a choice for me. The choice was being made for me. As they say in Japan, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes the drink, and then the drink takes the man. And that's where I was in that phase. The drink had taken me. So everywhere I went, I had to show up a little inebriated before I even got there because I couldn't let you see how much I drank when I did arrive, right? You know what I'm talking about? So we have to get a little sideways. We've got to get a little warmed up before we get there. Because if someone says that we have a drinking problem, God forbid we would agree, because once I agree I have a drinking problem, now I'm obligated to do something about it. And I wasn't willing to do anything, so I stayed in this area of denial. So I thought if I could just go to Gamblers Anonymous, I'd be okay. Right? I was living in Las Vegas, learned how not to gamble a little bit, stay away from those so-called free drinks, and everything would be fine, right? That's how badly my denial was. So I went to GA for a while, and... And I thought, okay, I've got this under control, right? The big C word, control. That's what I want. Lack of power, that was my dilemma, but I didn't realize it at the time. And so I go to Gamblers Anonymous, and I, and I start to gamble a little bit less, but you know what I found out in retrospect? I started drinking more at home. I was staying away from the casinos and the blackjack tables and, and the roulette wheels and, and the slot machines, but I was drinking at home. And things got even worse because one thing that we find out is that this disease is a progressive disease. Over any considerable period, things get worse. They never get better. And that's, and that's if you're drinking or not drinking, right? And, and one of the things we understand in the progression of this disease, if I was to ever go back out again, I would not pick up where I would have, you know, where I stopped. I would pick up where I would be. That's why so often we see people who do relapse after a considerable period of time, they go downhill rather quickly. Why? Because the body is trying to catch up with where they would have been had they never stopped. And that is one of the things of alcoholism that scientists don't even understand yet. 
and I hope they never figure it out because we'll try to find a way around it. So, so I remember going to GA and things got worse and I remember this morning, does anybody remember the morning you came into treatment? Anybody remember that what you were feeling that day? I'll never forget it. We, we don't regret the past, nor do we wish to shut the door on it. And I'm like a walking cliche because Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. So everything I ever know of any substance is found in the first 164 pages, plus the preamble, the doctor's opinion, you name it. So, so if I sound cliche I make no apologies any more than I would for cancer treatment that saved my life. So, so I remembered on February 9th of 1986, I had lost my job one more time. My mom and dad had already gone to work because I had to find a place to crash because I didn't have a place to live anymore. And, and I was in front of the mirror getting ready for the day. Now, I would hear voices, some were real, some weren't. Right? I don't know which ones were and which ones weren't. But I remember the voices of all the people I had disappointed along the way. You know what I'm talking about? The, the friends, the family, the loved ones, the spouses, the significant others, the brothers, the sisters. And they all would be in my head and they would all be saying, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? Just like that. Just that voice of dismay. They would be looking at me saying, why are you killing yourself? And I would hear these on a regular basis and we call that remorse. Which I hated. I hate, anybody else hate remorse? I started doing, and I know this is AA, but I started doing methamphetamine so I could stay up for five or six days at a time. And you know what I figured out? This made sense to me at the time. I didn't have to wake up every day feeling remorseful. I could wake up every five days <laughs> and feel remorseful, right? It made perfect sense at the time. And if you've never done meth, you might not get it, but, but for those of us who have and understand amphetamines, uh, makes perfect sense. It made perfect sense at the time anyway. That's the degree of my insanity. So I remember those standing in front of, in the mirror, and I, and I stood up there, and normally I would hear the voices, and this particular morning on February 9th of 1986, there were no voices. It was silent. And I looked in the mirror, and for the first time, I saw myself as dead. Did you ever see yourself dying? Did you ever look in the mirror and see yourself as a person who's dead? And I knew that if something didn't change, I was going to die. And it frightened me in a way that nothing had ever frightened me before. And for the first time in my life, I reached out for help. I went to the Yellow Pages. Back in those days, we had physical books. We call them Yellow Pages for you youngsters in here. And I looked under alcoholism. And I had never admitted I was an alcoholic. I mean, that's step one, right? We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our life had become unmanageable. I wasn't even willing to admit that I was a gambler. And yet here I was, knowing that if something didn't change, I was going to die. So I started calling treatment centers and, you know, do you have any money? Do you have any insurance? Blah, blah, blah. I'm, no, 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 no. And so they kept turning me down. And then finally, I contacted the Nevada Treatment Center over on Charleston Boulevard in Las Vegas. And, and they said, well, you know what? If you can get $50 and show up here in an hour, we'll speak to you. 
thought, wow, that's a, that's a pretty good deal, right? 50 bucks, show up in an hour, I can do both those things. Unfortunately, I didn't have a car, nor did I have any money. But I called my dad. My dad had been sober at this time. And I called my dad and I said, Dad, I want to go to a treatment center today, and if, and if I can show up at 50 bucks and show up in an hour, they'll, they'll talk to me at least. So my dad, knowing how bad I was, got over there as quickly as possible. And of course, he had the $50, and he took me over there. And that was the beginning of my journey on February 9th of 1986. That's when I went into detox, and I began to understand that there was another way of living. Because whether it was Dr. Irv, who was providing the medical assessments, he was a recovered alcoholic, and every treatment counselor in there all had a, a history of addiction and, most importantly, recovery. And I began the journey, and it was the first time I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know where it says that we're a fellowship of people? If that's the only thing I would have ever heard, Sylvia, I'd have stayed. Because I don't know if I became alcoholic because I was so fellowship-starved or I became fellowship-starved as a result of my alcoholism. All I knew was that I was so alone. I was so afraid that you wouldn't like me. I was so afraid that I wouldn't be likable, that I couldn't care about anyone, that I'd become so callous and so numb to what was right and wrong that I wouldn't fit. And so the fellowship kept me, even, even amidst all of the half-truths, which are the most dangerous, by the way, Father Martin says, the only thing more dangerous than a lie is a half-truth. Because with a half-truth, there's enough truth to it that you may, th or enough truth to it that you don't recognize it as a lie. And yet you were honest with me. You were truthful with me. You said, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. You know, nowadays, I think, with a lot of people on social media and people getting their feelings hurt so much, I don't know if you could get away with saying some of the things he said to me when I first came in the program, because they would actually laugh at me in a meeting. And I would be so offended that you would laugh. But, you know, I come to understand that I was so full of garbage that it, it, some of the things that came out of my mouth were pretty humorous, like I would actually make an excuse or a reason why I drank or used. And, and, and you know, I love it in the doctor's opinion. If you've never read the doctor's opinion, read the doctor's opinion. It says that women, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Now, what effect that is for you is whatever effect that is for you. But that's why we drink and use, right? And I wanted to know what that effect was. And I also found out on the next page that the very persons who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he was resolved of ever solving them, now finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only requirement necessary is to follow a few simple rules. I was in such pain, the next thing I wanted to know was what are those rules? Because if you can tell me those rules, it was like the secret that would unlock my universe. But still, I had a problem with being honest. So I only told you a little, a little at a time, a little at a time. And I want you to know that worked right up until I got drunk. Because again, half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his care and protection with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. You know what's interesting about that? 
our book is meant to be suggestive only, we realize we know only a little. You know what the only alternative suggestion is? There is one. Go try some controlled drinking. So that's our choice. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Do them if you don't. But go try some controlled drinking and when you get a belly full of your condition, right? And if you're fortunate, you can come back. But I'm here to tell you that more people leave and never come back. So if you're one who has relapsed such as me and you're here today, clean and sober, we are the exception, we're not the rule. If you're here today and you've never relapsed, you're the exception, not the rule. Because the majority of people die or end up incarcerated where they die for the rest of their life. You know, I'm fortunate. I have a, I have a uh, uh, prison exception in Utah, so I can go into eight, any state penitentiary, and I have on a number of occasions. And I'm always a little humbled every time the doors clo close after me when I'm leaving. I'm a little bit afraid when they close when I go in because I think, are they going to find me out? Right? There's that, still that voice in my head who remembers because we don't regret the past, nor do we wish to shut the door on it. So I remember how fortunate I am to know that eventually those are going to clang the other way. And when I leave that prison, I think, you know what? I'm so thankful. I, call, I have a name for them. They're called the Jones Family of Five. I never killed them. As high and as drunk as I got, going through intersections blind, I never killed that family. And therefore, I'm not in prison for 30 years for involuntary manslaughter, vehicular manslaughter. That's how fortunate we are, because that is what awaits so many of us, and so many that has, that has happened too. So at 71 days, I thought I could find an easier, softer way, so I went back and I tried to recapture that moment. And as fate would have it, I went to the Sundowner Saloon. My dad, he dropped me off at the Red Butler Motel, and I would find out afterwards that he thought that was the last time he was going to see me alive. That was on April 19th of 1986. And I sat in my hotel room, and I went catty-corner to the bar, to the Sundowner Saloon, and by all providence, there was a sober bartender there. As I ordered my double scotch on the rocks, right? I want to tell you I drank upper shelf, but I drank bar scotch right? Anything that make my feel good feel good, right? Because I wanted to drink essentially because I liked the effect. And if I, and if I spent uh, less money per shot, I could get more effect, right? Made perfect sense. So, so I, I ordered this drink from this bartender at Shift Change and he turned around and I knew him from AA. Yeah, God's got a great sense of humor, right? And, and, and I said, and I looked at him and I started to stumble and he said, if you're lucky, there'll be a tomorrow. And he poured my drink and he turned around and he walked away. And I tried the best that I could. I tried to recapture that moment of being an almost. And I remember sitting in my hotel room trying to get drunk, trying to get drunk. And it wouldn't work. I had been in AA long enough for you to show me that there was another way. I'd been in AA long enough for you to tell me some truths. To introduce me to a fellowship which which exceeded anything I ever wanted in life. You know, you told me that you would love me until I could learn how to love myself. And I'm not saying the people who raised me didn't love me. I'm just saying I never felt loved. There was something broken in me 
that didn't allow me to accept them telling me that I was okay. But somehow, in the midst of all my pain and all my confusion and all my disillusionment, you penetrated that. I think I stood in the circle long enough, holding hands, keep coming back, it works when you work it. And all the different things we say, and the serenity prayer, and the promises, you know, and they began to sink in. And I sat in that hotel room and I thought, you know, I don't want to die. I just don't know how to live. And I can't learn how to live here. So I guess I have to go back there. And again, godly intervention is unbelievable. And it's occurred so many times in my life, in my recovery. Probably occurred before, but I didn't notice it. Because God always is, always was, and always will be. He didn't show up just because I showed up in AA. He was preparing a way for me. <coughs> but I remember going back April 25th of 1986, and there was this meeting in Las Vegas at the turning point called the Late Lunch Bunch. So I thought I could go into there and no one would be there. Right? I could just sort of slip in the back. Right? And no. God had my sponsor sitting there as if he was waiting for me. And I went back and I said, Hey, Max, what are you doing? <laughs> he said, What are you doing? And I said, Max, I, uh, I just need to be here. I said, Okay, tell me about that. So I started telling him all the things that I needed. And he said, Bob, you don't get it. This is not a program for people who need it. This is a program for people who want it. And he reminded me, he says, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. I said, Max, I guess I want it. He said, get on your knees. We're going to do the third step prayer. And that was April 25th of 1986. And believe me, I've wanted to look back on occasions. But looking back, again, we don't regret the past, nor do we wish to shut the door on it. I wanted to learn how to look at where I was in the day. And I wanted to see where I could be. John Maxwell said, if there's, if there's hope in the future, there's power in the present. You know, And I wanted to see what I could become. So in that moment, after doing that third step prayer, I became a big book thumper. And they used to tease me about it. Oh, there goes the big book thumper. But you know what? I seemed to be a little bit more happy, joyous, and free than they were. Because I was involved in the big... Because that was the truth. That was the only truth I knew. Because I looked at the people, and to, to this day, it's so exciting for me because Buddy and Eddie and Scott and Steve and my sponsor, Will, who will celebrate 42 years January 1st, between them, they have 196 years of sobriety between five guys and they're still sober they're still going to meetings I call my sponsor right now he he's lives in Missouri he'll say yeah I went to a meeting last night I'm going to go to a meeting today I'm sponsoring this guy and sponsoring that guy and by the way did you happen to see that on page 85 right and I call my sponsor every week because rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path you know if if I want to stay recovered, and I am a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic, I need to stay in recovery. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? 
So to this day, I do steps 10, 11, and 12. And if you're not a student of the steps and your life isn't what you want it to be, make the connection. Your life isn't what you want it to be, not because life is giving you a bad deal. I'd say this, and if you have an argument with me, let's chat after the meeting. Your life is uncomfortable because you're not doing the steps. If you're having a problem relating to other people, it's because you're not working with your sponsor. If you have a problem fitting in and understanding fellowship, you're not going to enough meetings. If you think life is throwing you a, a bad curve, you're not helping enough other people. Period. Because the key to recovery is in the steps. The first nine steps get us to recovery. Steps 10, 11, and 12 keep me in recovery. People say, well, I'm going to do another four steps. I said, why would you do that? Again, I'm AA old school, right? Why would you do that? When, when everything you need in step four is in step 10. Matter of fact, steps one through nine are encompassed in step 10. And we do 10, 11, and 12. But I'm always about the steps. You know, when I come in and I admit I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable, we believe this is the first step in recovery. And it is. Because why in the world would I want to do steps th two through nine and subsequently steps 10, 11, and 12 if I wasn't fully convinced that I was alcoholic and could not manage my own life? Why would I do that? It would be like you being in the ocean swimming and I throw you a life preserver because I think you're drowning. But you think you're a perfectly good swimmer. And you're going to look at me and say, Robert, what the heck are you throwing me this life preserver for? I'm perfectly fine. Right? I mean, that's what I would do, wouldn't you? But if you're drowning, and you know that if you don't grab onto that life preserver, you will die, it's a totally different story. You're going to grab onto that thing, as Bill says in the 12 and 12, as only the dying can. If you don't think you're dying, or you don't think this disease will kill you, stick around. Just stay. Don't have to do anything special. Just stay. Just listen to some of the stories of what it used to be like, what happened, but what it's like today. If you want what we have. Because I could tell you about my life, and heck, you might even think I'm lying. It's that good. But that's recovery. The easier, softer way is the 12 steps. The easier, softer way is working the program of recovery. You ask anyone who's been around for a minute, they will tell you that I manufacture my own misery. Again, quote from the big book. That it's not about me, it's about we. When we look at the 12 steps, there's no I in there. There's we there's us. Even the program is designed. Do you, you ever notice about the steps in the traditions? The steps are designed so I don't kill me. And the traditions are designed so we don't kill each other. And I love in the promises how if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. I'm 68 years old, I'll be 68 in January, so I'm more than halfway through, and I'm totally mind-blown. 
You know, I'm so excited about recovery, I stay there. You know, whether it's about my marriage, whether it's about my relationship with my children, I think, holy cow, if I've done this and I get that, give me more of that, right? Because I tell people my middle name is more. Your middle name is more too. You just maybe haven't recognized it yet. Because when we were out there ripping and running, it was more alcohol, more drugs, more sex, more pornography. I was bulimic when I came in. I was a compulsive gambler. Everything was more. I had an insatiable appetite to make my feel good feel good. And today my, my name is still more. It's just what I want is different. Right? I want more recovery. I want more steps. That's why I call my sponsor every week. That's why I do a lot of social media, a lot of podcasts and things like that. And I, and I, and I, and I have people that I'm accountable to. Some are in this room. Hey, how am I doing here? How am I doing there? Is there anything you hear in my message? Because I want to stay on track. I don't want my ego. I don't want me to think I'm fine and then get off track because I've done it before. You know? I know what my weaknesses are, but I know what my strengths are. And my strengths are in the rooms of recovery. My strength is in the 12 steps of recovery. My, my, my strength is in a loving God as he expresses himself in our group conscious. You know? And if you have a challenge with the word God or the term God, there's a chapter called We Agnostics. I invite you to read it. One of the most beautiful things about recovery is that you get to determine who that higher power is, providing it makes sense. You know, when Bill was sitting across the table and he had that understanding of a power greater than himself, he, I'm going to paraphrase here, it says that he, he went from the icy shadows of intellectual self and he stood in the sunlight. Isn't that wonderful? The big book is very poetic, by the way. If you love to read, you'll take it in because it's, it's, it's a great read and it'll save your life at the same time just as it saved ours. But you ever, you ever get a little cold in your, in your vehicle, even though it might be 50 degrees outside, and your, but your vehicle's been sitting and the sun has been hitting your windshield for the last five or six hours? And you get in your vehicle, and even though it's 50 degrees outside, you sit in your vehicle, and there's like a radiation that comes through, and you get this instant feeling of warm in the cab of your vehicle. You know what I'm talking about? That's what Bill was talking about where he was in the icy shadows of intellectual self. And you know, and today, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I'm not grateful, I'm not happy for the things that I did and the people I have harmed along the way, although all of those relationships have been restored, thank God. I, you, stay, you stay alive long enough and stay sober long enough and anything can happen. You know, forgiveness is a wonderful thing. But I, but I know what it's like to think I was going to die. And I remember what it felt like when I decided I wanted to live. And I remember you showing me there was a way I could live. And then there is the way that I live. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that for anything. I mean, why would I? I've been given a life beyond whatever I thought I could imagine. When I go to sleep at night and I take my personal inventory, I don't, I don't wonder why I have value where my value is I'm grateful for the value that I have you know when I make amends to the best of my ability and I get up the next day and I thank God for the opportunity that he gives me 
Do you know this is statistically true? There's approximately seven and a half billion people on the planet, and 7.3% of them did not wake up today. But we did. We're part of that 93 percentile. We're not part of the 7.3 percent. And if that doesn't make you happy, if that doesn't make you grateful, if that doesn't make you wish that there's more, again, our middle name is more. So when we approach the day, we approach it with the opportunity to clean house, trust God, and work with others. So as we work through the steps and we, we understand that we're alcoholic, thank God, because I didn't know what was wrong with me. Because there was no helping me. There was no way for me to be out. Thank God I found out that I was alcoholic, that there's a name to this. And there is a response to the disorder. There is no cure. And I wouldn't want there to be a cure. Because if there was a cure and I went back to drinking without harm, I would stop wanting to learn what I've learned to keep sober. And I would be missing so much. So I understand that I'm insane, right? Because who would do these things that didn't need restoration to sanity? And then I come into an agreement with a power greater than myself and become willing to turn my will and my life over that power. And then I take my personal inventory. I begin to clean house, right? And then I admit to God and to myself and to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. The first time I'd ever done that. And boy, just that refreshing feeling that came over me. And then God and I and my sponsor started working on the defects of character and my shortcomings. And then I began to realize the people I had harmed along the way. Do you know it takes care of me before I can start taking care of the outside of me? Right? Thank God steps 8 and 9 didn't come before steps 4, 5, and 6, and 7. I'd have been in trouble. But they're in order for a reason. And so I go through 8 and 9, and I begin to make amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And then I begin on this journey of being a recovered person, and I live in my recovery. I love the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Why wouldn't you love something that saved your life? You know, it says on page 17, we're like the passengers of a great liner when moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. But unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which now binds us. But that in itself could have not held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact is we have discovered a way out. We have discovered a way in which we can agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Robert, and I'm alcoholic. Thank you. Thank you.